Welcome to Hearthside Salons, talks and conversations to feed your creative fire. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of Pagecraft Writing. Each week we bring you a guest worth listening to. Knowing Sarah Yeomans is a little like knowing a real-life Indiana Jones. She's an archaeologist who leads digs around the world. She's a member of the Explorers Club, who used to be a tour guide in Rome. She's married to a test pilot. She's got great stories, but she's also an astute researcher who can put things in context and take the long view. When you're dealing with ancient civilizations, we're talking the very long view. Sarah's research specialty is ancient medicine and epidemics. We were chatting about the plague of Justinian as it relates to COVID-19, as you do, and I said, Sarah, you should do a TED Talk about this. Instead, we launched Hearthside Salons, and she talks to us here, providing both historical context and hope for the future. Well, thank you. Thank you, Heidi. This is, um, it's kind of a fun format, and I'm so sorry for the circumstances that are bringing us all online, but I am hoping that despite this journey through, you know, 2,000 years of death and destruction that I'm about to take you on, uh, what we're going to come out with, um, I think, should hopefully be some historical perspective and just hope period um and and this sense that humans have been through much much worse uh and we are more well positioned to deal with this current crisis than any other humans in history uh and so um i just wanted to give you some background and then i'll talk about the similarities and even more importantly the differences between uh, pandemic events that humans have lived through before and the one that we're in now. Uh, so these are the four that I'm going to be talking to you about. And uh, there are many, many, many more. <laughs> um, but these are sort of the uh, selection of pandemic's greatest hits, if you will. Uh, and we're going to go all the way back into our time machine to the second century of the Roman Empire. And this fellow, Marcus Aurelius, is the emperor at the time, considered one of Rome's best, most competent rulers. And almost certainly during the majority of his tenure, he was wishing that he was a farmer out on the uh, fringes of the empire somewhere. Because in the middle of the 160s, uh, war Rome was in a war on two fronts. They were fighting Parthia in the east and the Germanic tribes in the north. Uh, and they were also, from about 165 onwards, dealing with a devastating pandemic. Now, in 165, the Roman armies in the east against Parthia are victorious, uh, and they come marching back across Anatolia into the Italian peninsula, and they're bringing war booty, they're bringing prisoners, uh, they are also bringing disease, uh, disease that we believe they picked up in Parthia, the Parthians, in turn, we believe, got it from trade with the Chinese. We have evidence from Han China about two decades prior to this that this disease was circulating in China. So over the decades in the second century, it's slowly making its way from east to west. Now, then as now, military forces tend to be one of the more mobile segments of any population. And 
in ancient Rome, this was certainly the case. So these, the victorious legions come marching back to the capital city where they have uh, what's called a triumphal parade. Uh, and from that point, after several months in the city, they are dispersed into different legions to different areas of the empire. So all of these soldiers come back, they hang out in Rome for several months, and then they scatter uh, to all points across the Roman Empire, and they are carrying this disease with them. Now, we're dealing with ancient sources, so historical demography, uh, particularly in antiquity, is really tricky. Uh, so it's very hard to nail down precise statistics, but this plague, this disease, uh, current studies suggest that it may have carried off as much as 10% of the population of Rome at the time. Now we estimate that there were about 75 million people in the Roman Empire at the time. So 10% is a significant number of people uh, at this time. The most likely culprit for this pandemic is the smallpox. Uh, this is one of the viral world's nastier representatives. It's more benign strain, so it's, its gentlest strain, has a mortality rate of about 30% if untreated. So that means 30% uh, of people who contract it uh, will most likely die from it. And that's the mild strain. So smallpox is a nasty one. Um, if you are sensitive to graphic images, please do close your eyes. You can still listen to me, um, but close your eyes to the next slide. I'll let you know when it's safe to open them. Uh, these are images of smallpox victims in the 1930s in the United States. I deliberately chose black and white because the color ones are even more graphic. Um, fortunately for us, the smallpox virus is very good at killing its host, but it's very bad at antigen shift and drift. This is the way that viruses mutate, which means it stays relatively stable and doesn't mutate rapidly the way that influenza viruses do. And that's why people who survive will be immune. They'll be horribly scarred, but they will be immune. And why a single vaccine generally does the trick to protect someone against the smallpox virus. Now, the last case of smallpox in the United States was 1949. The last recorded case globally was in 1977. So in the late 70s, smallpox was declared eradicated worldwide. The United States stopped vaccinating for smallpox in 1972. So most of us born after 72 in the US um, do not have immunity to this virus, which if the disease is eradicated uh, would be neither here nor there. Uh, it is worth mentioning that my husband is vaccinated against the smallpox now um, because during Desert Storm, there was fear of, of this virus being used as a bioweapon. Now in theory, that should be very difficult because there are supposed to only be two known live strains of smallpox in existence. One set is at the CDC in Atlanta, and the other is at a Russian research facility in Siberia called the Vector Institute. Now, in theory, those are the only two live strains remaining of the virus. However, in 2014, an employee was cleaning out a storage closet at the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, and found a set of vials containing live smallpox viral strains. So 
oops, <laughs> um, it was not widely publicized, as you can imagine. Uh, so uh, for those of you that are vaccinated, <laughs> that's great. Um, for the rest of us, uh, let's hope that they are, there are no more uh, storage closets at the FDA that have this virus. Um, just as a, you know, just to put it in perspective, when scientists deal with live strains of this virus, they are wearing hazmat suits with hermetically sealed respirators and their own oxygen supply. It's considered that dangerous. So finding something like that in a storage closet at the FDA would be equivalent to finding a nuclear warhead in someone's basement. So moving forward in time. Um, now, the thing with the smallpox is once it circulates through the Roman Empire, um, there is a high mortality, but those who have been exposed and survive are now immune. And because the smallpox virus is not good at mutating the way other viruses are, it eventually uh, fades into the background. And like many viruses of its kind, we don't see it again until you have another what we call a virgin population. So new generations that have never been exposed and therefore have no conferred immunity. If we fast forward now, uh, we're going to be, now we're in the middle of the sixth century. The Western Roman Empire has fallen. Uh, it is no more. The Eastern Roman Empire uh, is, is a different political animal, um, but it is still considered Rome. Today, many historians, uh, we refer to it as Byzantium. It's a Christian empire now. So a lot has changed for Romans in these centuries. Justinian is the name of the emperor at this time. Um, and because he was an eyewitness to this, this new pandemic that emerges, and because he was the emperor, um, poor guy gets this named after him. So we refer to it as the plague of Justinian. The culprit of this particular pandemic is the Yersinia pestis bacteria. This is the bubonic plague. This is the first known incidents that we have of bubonic plague in the human in human populations that we know of um, paleopathologists uh, that's they're sort of like the archaeologists of the microbiology world um, determined that a very important mutation in this bacterium developed in the early sixth century that allowed it to survive for longer periods of time in between hosts so it could survive up to a few weeks in the gut of a flea, for example, before it came into a new host. So it develops this mutation in the early sixth century. It may have just stopped there, but uh, there was another important event also in the early sixth century that happened that caused massive movements of human populations and a huge surge in shipping throughout the empire. In the year 536, uh, we're not sure if it was a meteorite or a volcanic eruption or both, but one or another of these events or both together happened in 536 and kicked up so much debris into the atmosphere that there was effectively for almost a year and a half what we call a nuclear winter. So, so much debris in the atmosphere that the sunlight wasn't getting through and it was not possible to grow or cultivate crops. Now, the Romans were very good at at storing food for famine periods, which would occur naturally in times of drought, for example. But this was something exceptional. 
So at this time, Egypt's climate was somewhat different than it is today. It was not as arid, not as dry and hot as it is today. And Egypt is incredibly fertile in terms of its soil and agriculture. So Egypt was the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. And in Egypt, they had huge stores of grain in the granaries all throughout the province of Egypt. So after the year 536, when it was impossible to cultivate crops for about a year and a half, Justinian needed to throw open the doors of these granaries and start shipping the grain stores all across the empire. Now, if you look at that map, you can see even in the Eastern Empire, smaller than the, the height of the imperial period, but still that is a huge area. Uh, and you have ships crisscrossing the Mediterranean and trade routes over land. These uh, these grain shipments came along with guests. These guys, this is a black rat. Uh, they were a constant and familiar presence in the Roman world. They lived closely with humans, particularly where there were large grain stores. They travel easily. They are attracted to the holds of ships uh, because of the same grain. Uh, that is now being shipped. They breed prolifically and they breed all year long. A single female can have as many as five to six litters a year. They are host to a particular type of flea called the Oriental Rat Flea, uh, which was a carrier, is a carrier of the Yersinia pestis bacteria. Rats traveled with the grain and the fleas that were host to the Yersinia pestis bacteria traveled with the rats. This is how the bubonic plague arrives in Europe. We believe in this case, it originated in Egypt, in the upper Nile Delta. It would circulate aggressively throughout what we today know as Europe for the next three years. Um, and it never left. It became what we call endemic. So one of those diseases that pops up again and again, much like many influenza strains that we have today, they come up seasonally. The same thing would happen with the bubonic plague. Uh, it would periodically surge, particularly after enough generations have gone by where you have populations with no previous immunity. Now, the most deadly resurgence of the bubonic plague was in the 14th century. This is what's referred to as the Black Death. Uh, the image here is of a physician wearing his beak-like mask, uh, which now sort of conjures all sorts of nightmares and, you know, Edgar Allan Poe's stories. Um, but these are masks that medieval doctors actually wore to protect themselves. In those snout that you see, they stuffed herbs, sweet-smelling herbs, lavender, um, oregano, herbs that they believed would filter out the miasma, the evil vapors that called the the, that caused this disease. So the humors, the miasma, the vapors, this is the medieval version of germ theory. This is how they believed diseases made the jump from person to person was through the air. So they thought these masks would protect them. This time the resurgence of the plague, uh, the bubonic plague comes from the east again, China, we believe, moving through India, Persia, and landing in Sicily in 1347, in the port of Messina when 12 trading ships from the Black Sea docked in Messina and most of the sailors on those ships were dead. Now, the Sicilians turned them away 
but it was too late. The store from the hold had already been offloaded onto the docks, uh, which meant the rats and their fleas were offloaded onto the docks. Uh, this was the most deadly pandemic in human history that we know of. Um, and we've been, we keep track of these events through uh, primary sources all the way back to Mesopotamia. So this, this was the worst it has ever been. Um, in the European area, uh, we believe they lost between 17 and 22% of the total population. So the population of Europe at the time was, we estimate, around 475 million people. After three years of the circulation of this plague, we're left with between 350 and 375 million people. This plague changed society. Um, it, it completely reorganized, uh, was the catalyst for the reorganization of European society. This is the end of feudalism uh, in a very definitive way because now agricultural laborers, instead of being sort of the equivalent of indentured servants, are now scarce and they realize that they can charge for their labor and they hold a lot more cards than they did prior to this incident, prior to this pandemic event. So it changed the economy of Europe. It changed the political structure of Europe. You no longer have uh, this, this sort of feudal way of life. Um, and it certainly did kill uh, a great deal of people. And the collective trauma from this event lasted uh, for at least two generations. And it changed the way people practiced religion as well. Um, and that's, you know, that's almost, that's a whole different talk. But um, it, it did shift a great number of areas of human society at this time. So I don't know how many of you have been to Siena in Italy, but this is an aerial view of the Cathedral of Siena. Uh, you'll notice in the center of the photograph, that is the cathedral. If you've been inside of it, it's a sizable cathedral. Now notice this section here. In the 1345, 1346, the Sienese decided that they were going to make their cathedral much, much larger. The Florentines had just fin finished building their massive Duomo. The Sienese were not going to be outdone by the Florentines. So they took, they, their plan was to take the nave of their existing cathedral and turn it into the transept of the new one. So in other words, the long part of their cathedral was now going to become the short axis of an even bigger one. And they began to build the new transept. That's the portion that I, I circled in red. Then the plague gets to Siena in 1348. And so many people die in the city uh, and it takes so long to recover from that, that to this day, the larger version of the Sienese Cathedral remains unfinished, sort of frozen in time, the way that it was left in 1348. So that is almost 700 years ago. Uh, the bubonic plague has several encore presentations uh, between then and now. 
a notable one in London in the 17th century, in uh, not just London, but England. Um, but you also have other diseases that, that circulate fairly regularly, typhoid, typhus, cholera. Uh, several of those are waterborne diseases. So by the end of the 19th century, when they made the connections between infected water uh, and infected people, things improved markedly. This brings us up to sort of the last major pandemic I wanted to talk about, which is the Spanish flu of the early 20th century. And it's something that if you didn't know a lot about it prior to the last few weeks, you've probably at least read some about it uh, recently, because this is our closest data point for comp comparando, what we call sort of a comparative example to what is happening now with COVID-19. The Spanish flu, the poor Spanish, uh, it really has nothing to do with Spain. The prevailing theory is that this particular strain of the influenza virus originated in Haskell County, Kansas. Uh, these particular viruses, the Spanish flu um, strain, they're avian. They originate in birds. They don't harm birds, but this is, this is, this is their primary transmitter. We can't get these types of viruses directly from birds in most cases. They need sort of an intermediary. In the majority of cases, it turns out that the intermediary animal is a pig. Pigs actually, despite appearances, are probably the closest to humans um, in terms of their RNA and their DNA. So at some point, uh, probably in late 1917, um, a bird and a pig came into contact with each other. Uh, and the virus from the bird gathered enough components from the RNA of the pig and was able to make a jump to humans. The first recorded uh, incident of what we believe is the Spanish flu is made by a physician named Loring Miner, uh, who noticed in January, early January of 1918, that a number of his patients were suffering from a particularly virulent strain of influenza that often quickly progressed into pneumonia. In most of these cases, it is the secondary infection, a pneumonia, uh, that kills. Now, Kansas is rural enough, especially then, uh, and the population spread out enough, especially then, that it normally would have probably just ended right there, except that Camp Funston, Kansas, 300 miles away from Haskell County, was the second largest training camp of U.S. soldiers getting ready to be shipped over to Europe during World War I to fight in the European theater. It had an average of 56,000 soldiers at any given time, and they were living in conditions like this. So we have newspaper reports from the end of February in Haskell County talking about various young men who are leaving Haskell and heading over to Camp Funston uh, where they will train before they head over to Europe. Certainly some of these young men brought this new strain of the flu with them and the conditions in this camp where men are living very closely together in unheated tents or barracks. And in some cases you can see no shelter at all. So already their immune systems are compromised just by the conditions that they're living in. This virus explodes through the camp by the first uh, Haskell County 
young men who arrived there was in early March. By the end of March, you have over 1,200 soldiers who are infected with this new strain of influenza. Now, they still are shipping soldiers not only over to Europe, but in order to get to Europe, they have to pass through many different departure cities on the East Coast, Philadelphia, Boston, Washington, DC, uh, Norfolk, Virginia. Um, and so throughout the year, as these soldiers are shipping through the East Coast of the United States and then over to Europe, this disease is circulating wildly um, among the US population and then eventually the European population. Now, during World War I, um, we are not the only, the only period in U.S. history where there are all sorts of media wars and attempts at suppression. Uh, during World War I, there was extraordinary levels of suppression of media in this country and many of the European countries involved in the war, except for Spain. So the reason that this disease is associated with the Spanish or gets the name Spanish flu is because the first public media reports of this new strain, this new particularly deadly flu, were coming out of Spanish newspapers. Spain was neutral in the war, so they didn't have the media suppression that the other countries did. So it had already become apparent to public health officials, well, in as much as there were public health officials, they called them sanitation engineers at the time, that there was a new, a more deadly strain of the flu circulating. And there was a significant resurgence of this flu in August of 1918. Many cities canceled events. Now, they already had now for many decades embraced germ theory. They understood how these diseases were communicated more or less uh, from one person to another. So this idea of having uh, dense crowds all together at events, they knew that this could facilitate the spread of this, this virus. Most cities by August were canceling these events. The one exception was Philadelphia. Their leadership decided that they were going to hold their planned Liberty Bond Parade at the end of September in 1918. Uh, this, these Liberty Bonds, they were sold to raise money for the war effort. Uh, and the leadership of the city decided that the you know, reports of this virus, now remember, there, of course, there's no social media, television, it's all coming through letters, newspapers from other cities. Uh, they, they didn't feel that it was important enough to cancel this event that they had been planning for months and months. There were 1,200 people who marched in the parade and almost as many as 200,000 spectators that day. Of the estimated 675,000 Americans, uh, U.S. residents, I should say, who died of the Spanish flu, during this pandemic, 67,000 of them were in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania alone. So here we are in our current moment. Um, and I wanna just take a few minutes before I kind of wrap up and open up for questions um, to look at some of the parallels between some of these events uh, and more importantly, some of the differences. This is our little COVID-19 guy. Here's our culprit. He is a coronavirus. He is not the coronavirus. Uh, the common cold is a coronavirus. This is a family of viruses. 
Uh, so COVID-19, just random trivia, uh, is actually a more correct name for it. The closest comparison we have, the most recent event, is the 1918-1919 uh, Spanish influenza. But there are vast differences between them. Um, back then, it took Loring Miner, the, the country physician in Kansas, who first realized he was dealing with a potentially new disease, um, it, it took him several weeks to register that this was happening. He wrote a few letters to colleagues on the East Coast and asked them to pass it on to government authorities in Washington. Uh, this all took months. Now, in the time it took Loring Minor to figure out that he's even dealing with something particularly new, um, the Chinese scientists had already mapped the genome of COVID-19 published it and distributed it to the global scientific community. So genome mapping didn't even exist, of course, 100 years ago. So we are much, much faster out of the gate on this one. Um, and, you know, the, the time lost for testing and, and, you know, it's the current political situations and, and back and forth, I'm sure you're all aware of, notwithstanding, even if we put all of that aside, not that it excuses it, but just for argument's sake, let's put it aside for a minute. We are still much faster out of the gate with this one um, than they were able to be in 1918. Um, our medicine, our technology, uh, our, our treatment abilities are you know, chronologically 100 years ahead of what they had in, during World War I, but metaphorically, they are light years ahead of where they were. There wasn't even such a thing as specialized medicine. You didn't have respiratory specialists or infectious disease specialists. You had a handful of genuine scientists in the medical community at Johns Hopkins and the University of Michigan. Still at this point, uh, there was no um, systematic standard of training for physicians in the United States. So before I move on to more of the differences. I did want to just kind of do a brief excursus into some of these similarities because I, if you're anything like me, you're watching the news and seeing, you know, what people are saying and, and how things are circulating online and going, gosh, you know, people have just lost their minds. You know, that that the conspiracy theories that maybe this was engineered in a Chinese laboratory. It was not. They, um, the scientific data is is very definitive about that. There is nothing unusual about this virus from a virus's perspective. It is doing its virusy thing the way that viruses have always done. This is what happens when very diverse ecosystems collide. Uh, you have viruses, I, I sort of the way that I explain it, you know, when you come into these, you know, wildlife markets, for example, uh, these are ecosystems that in the natural world would have nothing to do with each other. And yet now all of these animals from very disparate environments are in a very dense, contained artificial environment in which there are also many humans. This is like a genetic yard sale for viruses. They get to rummage through all of this new material and pick up the components they need to jump to new and different hosts. Um, several of these diseases that I've mentioned, we believe came from China. That doesn't mean that China, you know, is a, a more diseased 
place. Uh, often most new diseases or diseases that are discovered or even very old ones, they develop along the equatorial line close to the equator because in that area of our planet, you have the most biodiversity. So, you know, it will be the subject of studies, I'm sure, for years to come, tracing the exact path of this particular virus. You know, how did it get, where did the bat come from? How did it get into the bat? You know, where, that is for scientists to, to determine. But this is what happens when different ecosystems come together. In antiquity, during the Antonine Plague, you had a whole entire human population in a part of the world where they had never been before and they were exposed to a virus they had never been exposed to before. When the bubonic plague happened in the sixth century, you had a famine as a result of, of this nuclear winter in 536. Huge populations of people were moving and huge quantities of grain and animals in the forms of rats and fleas were moving on a scale that had never happened before. So environmental factors um, are everything when it comes to these viruses shifting and drifting and making the jump. Um, it happens naturally. This, this event that we're dealing with right now was a statistical certainty. Uh, it, it would have been impossible for it not to happen, particularly given the number of people on the planet and the various environments that, that are being sort of um, coming into contact with each other. And this has happened since the beginning of, of viruses, really. Um, now, what was not predictable and what is probably never going to be predictable is exactly when, because you only need that one incident. Um, this would have happened in 1957 or 1968. Um, it did happen in those years. Those viruses were particularly um, mild, um, but those are also two events that could have turned into something more virulent like the Spanish flu. So this virus is just doing what it does. Um, and the good news is that we are more prepared than we ever have been to handle these types of things. I don't know if any of you have seen this circulating, but I love this graphic. I think it drives home really nicely what we're dealing with in terms of scale uh, and potential loss. And you can see COVID-19, it's the, the front one right here, this little tiny ball compared to these other you know, significant pandemic events in history. So it is, comparatively mild. Now, in antiquity, in the Middle Ages, even in, in the early 20th century, we have what I call secondary consequences of pandemic events that become just as important as the primary consequence. The primary consequence being the disease, the secondary consequence being the human reaction to the disease. So in the Antonine period, for example, we have letters from ancient Egypt, the Roman governor in Egypt writing to the emperor complaining that he's lost his entire tax base because those who didn't die fled. They left their jobs, they left their fields, 
they left their stores, they left their businesses, and they just left. And so the entire economy of Egypt uh, collapsed at that point um, after the pandemic of the second century, and it took them several decades to recover. This hysteria, the, the fear response of, of humans um, can often be more detrimental to the fabric of a society than the disease itself. And, you know, we, we can talk about the economy forever. Uh, we won't do that tonight. But what I'm seeing happen, his, as you know, from the point of view as a historian right now, is that humans in general are behaving really well. Um, we are, you know, if, with the exception of <laughs> toilet paper hoarding and things like this, um, you don't see people running away and abandoning their families, leaving their children at church doors and, and deserting them. Um, this is something that we as a society, we are, are more evolved than that. We are more rational than that. We have a sense, you know, our, our medical science and our molecular biology um, science, these things equip us, whether we understand the intricacies of it or not, I certainly don't, um, but I know that there are people who do. Um, and so we are behaving more rationally. Certain common themes happen in every pandemic event in recorded history. Conspiracy theories. This happened in every pandemic that I've mentioned. In 1918, they thought that the Germans did it on purpose, that they actually sent sick Germans into the U.S. population to try to infect Americans um, as a way to weaken the American forces during the war. In the Middle Ages, uh, they believed that it was a misalignment of the planets that cause pandemics. And that's where we get the word influenza from. It is the Italian for influence, the influence of the poor alignment of planets or astronomical events. And in, in the Middle Ages, we had people blaming the Jews. Of course, there's always this desire to place blame. It helps us feel like we're in control. Um, Jewish sanitary laws um, were such that Jewish populations in medieval Europe, there were fewer deaths, fewer rates of infection and fewer deaths um, because of the way they kept their houses, because of uh, their hygiene. So in the Middle Ages, people were very quick to blame the Jews uh, for the occurrence of the bubonic plague, the Black Death. Um, and you do see some of that today with people, um, you know, these see articles about uh, racism and xenophobia toward Asian Americans, um, people who have not been to China in years. Um, this particular disease originated in China and the wet markets uh, where these things can happen definitely need to be addressed, but this can happen anywhere, uh, anywhere where you have different ecosystems, different species coming together. Um, Today, we also, you know, again, I know if you're watching the news ad nauseum, sometimes I can't tear my eyes away and get frustrated with different politicians. Um, and whatever we think of their choices, unlike 1918, politicians today cannot act unilaterally. Uh, they cannot act without a degree of public accountability 
they'd probably like to, but they can't um, because of the way, because of our information age. In 1918, we have primary source documents that were eventually declassified and released. Woodrow Wilson made a very deliberate decision to send troops over to Europe he knew were sick. He was presented with statistical models saying, you send a ship with this many soldiers over to Europe, X number of them will die on the way. And he said, send them anyway. We know this because now we have the documents. You couldn't, Paul, you couldn't make that kind of decision today without an uproar uh, among military leadership. And that is my biggest takeaway from this whole thing. We have become more humane, I believe. Humanity has become more humane. We are locking ourselves down globally in order to protect what is statistically you know, a pretty tiny segment of the overall population. Now, I'm not, I'm not minimizing the importance uh, or the impact of this on that population, of course not. But this is the first time in history I have seen, any historian has seen humans voluntarily making these tremendous sacrifices as a society to protect the most vulnerable among us. And I think this is uh, a very inspiring thing. Um, and there are, of course, economic consequences. There are other consequences, secondary consequences that we may be dealing with for quite some time. Um, but we are also more resilient economically uh, than we've ever been before globally. We're more diversified. You know, the stock market is not just railways and steel. Um, you know, it was a very almost a one-trick pony in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and now we have very, very diverse industries, some of which will rebound faster than others. But um, I think there is a great cause for hope. I think humanity has lived through much worse. Um, and we are learning a lot faster. Um, historically, for the material that I study, I'm far more worried about climate change, not just because of the impact that it can have uh, on the climate, but because of what viruses are lurking in the permafrost. There have been studies done by uh, French scientists that determine viruses in the Arctic region that are thawed from the permafrost. They can be revived after 10,000 years. Uh, so can bacteria. And the virus molecules they're finding in the permafrost are much larger and much more complicated uh, than any viruses humans have encountered in the last 3,000 years. So we don't want those guys uh, escaping the permafrost and reviving. So I think, you know, the, the takeaway for me in all of this is that uh, we're gonna get through this. <laughs> uh, humanity has been through much, much worse. Um, and, you know, we have bigger problems to solve. Uh, and I know that sounds, um, I know that sounds extraordinary considering the moment that we're living, but we, we have come together to, to contain this, to contain COVID-19 that tells me we are capable of coming together to deal with even bigger problems that may come up in the future, if not in our lifetime, then in our children's lifetime.
or maybe our grandchildren's uh, lifetime. But if the planet keeps heating up, um, diseases worse than this one uh, are coming. But our medical technology will be even better by then. And I always like to wrap up this topic with a letter from a friend who is much smarter than I am, who studied this in much more detail. Uh, he is was um, an astronaut, and, but first and foremost, he was a climate scientist and a very good one. And when I started getting into this rabbit hole a few years ago, uh, studying historical pandemics and their relationship to human activity and environment, I wrote him this very nihilistic email saying, oh my gosh, this is horrible, what are we doing? And, and I just wanted to read to you an excerpt of the email that he wrote back to me. My dearest yeomans, human history is full of stories of how adept and inventive problem solvers humans can be. Somewhere in basement labs that are underfunded and underappreciated and almost certainly underheated, a person or group of people are developing technologies and making discoveries that will help solve these problems. Have a little faith. We've done pretty well since we've crawled out of the water and started walking upright, wouldn't you say? We've invented air travel, vaccines, we've walked on the moon, and don't ever forget the most shining example of human achievement, which was every Monty Python movie ever made. So uh, that concludes um, basically what I have to say, um, and thank you for bearing with me that sort of roaringly fast <laughs> overview um, of 2,000 years, but I hope um, I hope it did at least provide some perspective um, and maybe maybe a little hope that we are, are very well positioned to deal with this, and we will. Sarah, thank you. I, I've seen several things in the chat here about, um, first of all, seconding Monty Python, obviously, <laughs> um, and just like appreciating your optimism, because I think that's, we're all so, you know, it's hard, especially given those of us that haven't lived through like I wasn't here during the Holocaust or World War II. I don't remember what looking at that level of we're destroying the world looks like or felt feels like. So for me, this is, you know, it's like, it's, it's challenging to look at things with hope. So thank you for that. Um, does anyone have any questions that they would like to? Um, that was fascinating. Thank you so much. I had no idea the Spanish flu didn't originate in Spain. I'm surprised the Spaniards haven't been pushing back. Um, <laughs> when, when you spoke, I think it was the bubonic plague and you were talking about societal change. I, I wonder if you see any societal change as, as the result of what we're dealing with, you know, four weeks shelter in place. I sort of feel that we're going to have to learn to be in relationship with each other again as we go back into the workplace in our churches, our synagogues. I'm not sure I want to sit that closely next to people on a plane. Um, so I'd love to hear your perspective on, on what does it look like uh, or what could it look like from a societal perspective, whether it's the economy or disappearance of wet markets, and I'll, I'll stop there. Well, I, I, think, um, I think we will see some changes uh, we will certainly see, I imagine for some time, at least in this country, uh, an, a, a more prominent position of the discourse surrounding public health care, access to health care. Now, like any human endeavor, 
uh, it, anything that any significant or, or substantial shift in the way a society uh, holds itself or organizes itself, uh, it almost always requires an external sustained force, sustained force. If this thing magically disappears tomorrow and everyone can go back to normal life and, and Heidi and I can get on a plane to Italy the way I know that we're dying to do, um, I suspect it would be very quick be, that everyone would go back to business as usual. If this type of event keeps happening or if this particular event goes on um, for a significant amount of time, that's going to be the catalyst that will drive these, these bigger shifts. Um, I think in terms, you know, like, like healthcare in the United States, for example, which has been a contentious issue for years and I think is now thrown up into huge relief. Um, and it remains to be seen how our leadership, either this current leadership or whatever happens after the elections in November, how they, how they deal with it, how um, our politicians in this country deal with it. Um, I think the substantial shifts that are going to be required in governments, in societies overall, those have a better chance of happening the longer this period goes on, unfortunately, or to have repeats of these types of events. Socially, individually, I'm guessing that at least for some time, we are all going to be, as, as you mentioned, sort of a bit warier of being close to someone. Um, Honestly, for me, flying, I'd be delighted if I had six feet of space around me at all times. <laughs> I think that's awesome. <laughs> I hope airlines have to do that. I'm sure they won't. Um, but I think we might see changes on a smaller level. Um, economically, certainly. Um, I'm wondering, and again, this is outside of my area, uh, maybe Carlo can do a talk on this at some point. Um, I'm wondering if corporations aren't going to be, have pressure put on them to stop with these extraordinary stock buybacks during times of plenty in order to prepare themselves more appropriately for periods like this. I don't know. Um, I do think we will be different. I think our politics will be different. I think our way of engaging with each other will be different, just like it was after both world wars. Um, but we certainly thrived after those events as well, eventually. Um, it drove invention, it drove industry, it drove scientific advancements. I think we're gonna see a lot of that too. Sure. We can only hope our politics will change, but there you go. Thank you so much. <laughs> One thing I have learned is with the exception of Marcus Aurelius, of whom I am a tremendous fan, politicians have always behaved the same way <laughs> during most of these events. So nothing new under the sun. Well, I was very impressed to see that, um, that, that Spain is now talking about universal uh, minimum income. That's not how you say that, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so socially and governmentally that sort of change I'm like wait what that's possible that's amazing and um looking out our window here and I haven't seen blue sky like this in Los Angeles ever and mm -hmm. I've lived here almost 15 years take and pictures just, will you because I yeah I grew up there and remember we used to right. you remember we get those smog in our lungs yeah. just from playing outside well so that's what I'm wondering about is can we you know, will this be enough of a driver to have everyone think, 
wait a minute, it is possible if we, it would take sweeping, you know, emissions legislation, but oh my God, look, it's possible. Like this, mm -hmm. we could have it like this all the time. Mm -hmm. zero, if everyone has zero emission cars and all, you know, all the rest, I and mean, there's lots of other factors, but that kind of hope and like, could we please hold on to that? Yeah, there's there's a certain period after any crisis, um, and I, there's actually a term for it. I can't remember. It's kind of an economic term. Uh, there's a window of opportunity after mm -hmm. any sort of traumatic event, a national traumatic event, in which real change can take place, um, and that that would be the moment to do it. Um, you know, when this current crisis is passed and everyone starts to emerge, you know, kind of blinking, looking around, learning how to, you know, resume our lives, um, that is going to be an extraordinary opportunity. It's going to be important to um, put pressure on our leaders to take that opportunity. Heidi, I mean, I want to believe in the positive outcomes that can happen in terms of and I read a really interesting essay by Charles Eisenstein. I don't know if anyone else has read it. I'm talking about it being a crossroads. But I just wonder, just sort of thinking politically, and maybe this is for the politicians on the panel, um, that there is a tension between wanting global knowledge, right? So in a sense, we've, we've dropped that ball because the countries aren't, haven't really interacted in the way that you would like them to. You know, there's been a rejection of that. Um, but this isolationism, and is there a danger that the isolationists are going to feel like, well, the biggest problem was the fact that it came from China? Right. So because every one of your, you know, examples was about it traveling. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm wondering how you counteract that, because in some ways the science was reassuring. But I could also see that the science that you presented could actually be taken in a negative way and presented as a reason for putting up borders and checking temperatures and not allowing certain people in. And I'm, I'm just wondering about that tension that's going to come out between needing global knowledge, but really some countries saying we actually don't need the rest of the world. You know I mean? Britain. Yeah. Yeah. I've thought about that a lot too, especially as I've seen these news reports regarding, you know, are we ready to subject ourselves to even more invasive, you know, procedures at airports, for example, right. having someone take your temperature. Um, and my guess as a historian is that economics will drive that. Um, I think there will always be a faction in, in various countries. I think, well, we're seeing it with the rise of populism at this particular moment of the, the desire to isolate Mm -hmm. However, isolation, uh, you know, isolationism as, a, as an economic ideology uh, is not as profitable. Mm -hmm. And I think my guess is that that is what's going to eventually drive, you know, the opening up of borders mm -hmm. um, globally again, because it's not, in many cases, it's not possible to be as profitable uh, without that. Now the way we move across those borders may change, um, but you know, and and I don't know if this is um, if this is a politically viable 
uh, alternative, but the easiest way to deal with these pandemic events is to avoid them in the first place. <laughs> and so, you know, by eliminating as many of the circumstances that cause them as possible, and that means very intelligent and deliberate management of our environment. Right. Uh, which at least in this country has become such an obnoxiously political issue that it's difficult to have rational conversations across the board. But, you know, the science is the science. The viruses aren't really concerned about that. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, the, the isolational, isolationalism, um, I think that desire will be there in certain segments of the population of various countries, but I don't think that it's going to be, um, I don't think it's gonna be economically sustainable or at least not as profitable. Yeah. Thank you. Just talk, having you talk, hearing you talk about penicillin, I always think about as an archeologist, do you get sort of this, the people who are always like, oh, I wish I lived in another time and I wanna live in the Renaissance. And then you sit there going, yeah, but penicillin. Right, like, yeah. The romance of I always say that. about the times versus the reality. I do. People always ask me, you know, would you want to go back to a certain period in time? And I would say, yes, but only for a brief period. I'd want to bring um, antibiotics and my dentist with me. And I wouldn't want to be a woman <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> so I'd like to be a fly on the wall. That's what I would do for a week. <laughs> Yeah, there's, um, there's a lot of uh, areas in history I would love to visit if I were a white man. <laughs> uh, invisible observer. You know, I, I know that um, we're all stuck at home, but that doesn't mean that everyone's not really busy. So I, I do appreciate you taking the time to let me kind of, yeah, this is what I spend most of my time researching. I'm, I'm coming down the home stretch of my dissertation. So it's been a very surreal experience reading about plagues in history all day and then <laughs> sort of coming out of my mental fog into a uh, into the middle of the current one it's going to be um i'm going to remember this period as a very surreal <laughs> surreal one i'm sure most of us will yeah. um, but i do think we're going to be okay by and i think it's it's gonna it's going to be a very particular experience you know the kind of thing that we will talk to our kids and grandkids about um but we'll get through it so i think at the moment it's going to be very challenging but you know it'll remain to be seen um how the population how the american population uh ends up you know determining our leadership in the future and and even the existing leadership is they are still subject to public pressure. Um, and so really it is up to the public to put pressure on our leaders, um, whatever state we live in, whatever party affiliation we have, um, to try to get the outcomes that, that we would like to see. Uh, so it really is going to come down to public will. What kind of changes, you know, what lessons have we learned? What changes do we wanna see and how much collective effort are we willing to put into um, making sure our leadership sees that through? Thank you. Um, let's hope we can effectively do that come November. Um, don't laugh, Jacqueline, it's possible. <laughs> um, I've just lost my optimism. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, anybody don't, don't. there are, you know, whatever, whoever these public figures are, you know, and however you may feel about them. Um, well, we may not have a lot of faith in politicians of any ilk. Um, I think there is every reason to have tremendous faith in our medical professionals and our scientists. And they're the ones who are going to be getting us through this. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that. I, I absolutely um, agree with that. I think what I worry about, not to take us down a political, and I, I'm clearly British, I don't get to vote. I've lived in this <laughs> for 20 years. My immigration status has all changed or gone on hold just now while we, while we deal with this. Um, I think what I worry about is just the, it's the news, right? Whether it's here or elsewhere, that the fake news, it's how stories are always spun. And people, when we're, we're on this webinar, I, I'm going to make an assumption that we're curious, right? We want to learn. And you're always testing and trying pushing boundaries. And so I, I, I worry that um, folks don't necessarily take the time to read or understand um, you know, I mean, the, the conspiracy theory in the UK is that the coronavirus is, is um, connected to the rollout of 5G, you know, and I just go, oh, my gosh, mm. it's wow. <laughs> I, I think oh. those kind of and, you know, I didn't mention the 5G, but that was certainly something I was thinking about when I was was looking at, you know, sort of I call them like the, the kooky theories about why these things happen. And and I think that's indicative of a deeper, you know, sort of a more primitive psychological human response you know we're looking for we're looking for explanations that would allow us to have a measure of control over the situation if we can say okay well it's 5g that's causing this so we'll just get rid of 5g you know that it's it's almost a it's almost a comforting theory to subscribe to for certain people um it may not give us a great deal of confidence you know in the population at large, but but I can say that that kind of thing has happened in every pandemic event I've ever studied. There are always these types of theories because that's how humans are programmed. We, we are always looking for explanations and generally it's the most complicated or intricate or unlikely explanation because, you know, Evolutionarily speaking, it's the people who look for complicated patterns and potential disruptions in those patterns that survived 15,000 years ago. Our brains are still, you know, living 15,000 years ago. Uh, everything else is kind of present. And so that's where you have this sort of dissonance. Um, and I think also, you know, technology companies and the corporate world has lost a lot of public confidence, um, you know, over the years because of various uh, things that they've done. And so that makes it easier for some people to believe that, well, yeah, sure, you know, it's, it's 5G networks that are, I think 5G should still be studied. Um, I think there's a lot we don't know about it, but there is nothing about the way this virus is behaving that is any different than than any other of its little virusy neighbors and cousins and <laughs> ancestors. <laughs> do, you see, um, do you see more medical and scientific people becoming politicians to help get us through? Um, Lana, we'll have a little follow-up there and then. I would love that. I would love to see more scientists and medical professionals enter politics. Um, you know, I'm paraphrasing Aristotle, but um, he said something to the effect of 2,500 years ago that 
those who are most qualified to lead nations have too much integrity to ever want to do so. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, if anything, there's a takeaway from that is that, you know, I mean, politics are politics. Um, there's yeah. no perfect system. There's no perfect person. There's no perfect leader. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, with our medical and scientific community and our human community, um, you know, there, we're still, we're getting there. We're still a whole lot better and, and more humane uh, and more globally connected to each other uh, than we've ever been. So I think there's reason to be hopeful. You know, there's a lot of, uh, well, there's at least a few of us that are in film or in media on the on this. Um, so what are some story patterns that you see that come out of these experiences? Are there any story patterns of the way societies tell stories of what happened or the stories they gravitate towards afterwards and the way that story can influence politics as well? When you have fake news, it's like stories do change what we believe way more than data. So yeah. kind of what can the role of the storyteller be in rebuilding and in moving us into a more positive change mindset after this? I see what you're saying. No, and, and you're right. I think that's a very astute observation. The, the narratives that are crafted after the fact um, by the people who have the ability and influence to not only craft but disseminate those narratives those are often the way that history remembers these events. Um, and that's, you know, as a historian, that's part of the job is, you know, reading these first person accounts and thinking of the bias of that person. You know, for example, most of what we know about these pandemic events from antiquity up through the Middle Ages are only told through the eyes of the elite because those are the only ones who are literate. So we know that we're looking at an implicit bias in the primary sources. And that's, you know, and again, I won't bore everyone with the details, but that's where we try to bring archeology span in and, and create, you know, sort of create as more, more of a neutral narrative if we can. So in terms of going forward, I think that, and this is my wish list, right? I don't, I don't know how possible this is, but, um, I think going forward, it, if, if we are able to remember this event and as objectively as possible without, you know, we, we can, if in fact it is determined that this particular virus made a jump in a wet market, and I'm just using this as an example, we can look at the existence of these places um, in certain parts of the world as something that we would like to see changed and we can go through the channels to do that without placing blame on an entire population or an entire race. You know, I think to, to keep as much emotion out of it as possible, looking at it as, as neutrally as possible, but not clinically, if that makes sense, you know, to still, to still make it a human story, just not, just not a politicized one, because I think those those more neutral narratives are the ones that are going to resonate the longest. Um, politicized narratives come and go depending on which political parties are in power, which political parties are controlling that moment. But you know, historically, over time, um, 
it's it's the more neutral ones, um, the the ones that try to look evenly at a situation that uh, are deemed the most reliable. I don't know if I if I answered your question or if I understood it well, but um, yeah, if that it, that makes sense. Yeah. I was thinking more of that. Definitely, I think is really useful, especially on the uh, academic side of how you frame this moving forward. I was thinking more of like the fictional narrative, just like does the story, do the way people tell stories, does that get changed by all these people dying in the plague? You know, I mean, humans were storytelling beings. So do our narratives even change? Our fictional narratives, do you see, and it may not have been your focus area, but do we see that the way you even, like how you said the bubonic plague, I mean, feudalism died. So do we get a whole new batch of stories? Do we get a whole new batch of people that now tell story? I mean, how does that? Yeah, no, and, and in fact, that that the period that you mentioned is probably our best um, our best paradigm for studying that because it's it's was the most dramatic change, um, and you do see a tremendous shift. And actually, you know, it, um, I. Would love some time to kind of think on that and dig into it a little bit. I've, I'm not used to looking at things from that perspective, and I think it's really interesting. So I'd want to give it a little thought and answer more completely, if that's okay. It's just it's not something. No, thank you for even I want to kind of about it. process. My it. head goes there. So no, thank you. I think it's I think important. This was great. This was really yeah. great. <laughs> um, we have sort of one last question in the comments here from Teresa. She asks, "Is there any precedent in the plasma infusion?" that seems to be a potential cure, blood plasma from those COVID-19 survivors, because they would have the antibodies in their blood, um, is that, it seems like a likely path to pursue. So is, has there been precedent for that? Well, but the Spanish flu seemed to be unique in that the majority of deaths or the, the most dramatic, quick, quickest violent deaths were the healthy adults, the 20 to 40 range. Um, and the literature I've read is, you know, sort of hypothesizes that it, it caused a, such a violent reaction in people's immune systems mm -hmm. that their immune systems overreacted. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is what caused, uh, led to the death. Um, so people in, in pregnant women, for example, um, had very high mortality rates because their immune systems are on overdrive. And that was something unusual about the Spanish flu that you don't see in, in other flu viruses. Um, and, and actually this one, the COVID-19 is causing the same issue. That's why it's hitting people, their lungs so hard is mm -hmm. it, it, if you get a, if you get a bug, it triggers cytokines in your body, which are little, you know, thingies that go mm -hmm. kill, kill, kill the intruder. And this one, triggers something can trigger what's called a cytokine storm the cytokine storms yeah which overwhelm the body it's it's mm. just too much it's just too much and the body can't take it which yeah. is why people end up on ventilators and die mm. you know so that's what happened with those young healthy people getting spanish flu was their bodies went yeah kill and it was it was an overwhelm mm. yeah so I think that we could, from related from that to what Jennifer was asking is I think we can look forward to a young adult uh, dystopian future series called the cytokine storms. <laughs> 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 um, we're going to wrap up with that. 
So um, Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your incredible knowledge with us. I am so honored oh, to call you. And, no, um, this was, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say, I mean, being with all of you this evening was fun. I'm not going to say this, the situation is fun, but no, I, I appreciate it. I, I, you know, part of in these weeds all day long. So I never really know if anyone else finds it interesting or not. So yeah. <laughs> thanks for making me feel like you do. <laughs> this is great. No, you're so wonderful. And I mean, I would love, we can circle back, have you on again uh, in the future. Thank you everyone so much for being part of this. Sarah, thank you so thank much. You, you guys and, all be uh, well. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Go right. forth and, go forth and stay home. <laughs> Good night, everyone. Thanks so much. Join us next week for a chat with visual artist Silvia Gallini. She comes from a medically inclined family in the north of Italy and is expected to follow that path. But now she's a wildly imaginative image maker here in LA. We'll talk about her journey and how she finally gave herself permission to make mistakes. Special thanks to our graphic and sonic designer, Joel Harris. Our theme music is by Lachey Swing. For more on our script coaching, online concept to pages writing courses, and writing retreats in Italy, again someday, check out pagecraftwriting.com. I'm Heidi from Pagecraft. Thanks for listening and stay well. <laughs>